0: You are listening to Episode 2 of Captain's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 4. Break-All System. 2371, September 28. Very well, ladies and gentlemen, the captain began. What we know is sparse. What we have is a tragedy. We don't know what kind of catastrophic failure they've had, and we'll need to be careful going in. For the record, and she nodded to the log recorder on the table in front of us, I filed a formal salvage claim against the derelict vessel Chernyakova, now lying three kilometers off our starboard bow. That claim has been acknowledged pending CPJCT validation when and if we reach break-all orbital. The authorities have been notified as to the condition of the ship, and they already had a packet en route with the forensics team. It won't be here for another ten days, and we've been granted clearance to enter the hull pursuant to our claim of salvage. She paused then and looked around at us. There was a very strong sense of it could have been us around that table. The simple fact that the ship across the way was a barbell, just like the tinker, reinforced the feeling. Having been through one near calamitous environmental failure underway myself, I was only too aware of how fragile the ships really were. Around the universe, clippers were sailing trillions of kilometers a day, and while the safety record for the big ships was actually better than planet-side pedestrian travel, periodically one got lost or destroyed close enough to you that it mattered. Ms. Kazyunenko has reported to me that there has been no response to hail, no distress call, and no sign of electronic emission since we've been here over the last 24 standard hours. Mr. Huang's physical exploration of the bridge through the glass revealed no sign of life. The ship has been designated as abandoned under joint committee rules pending discovery of any living person aboard. She paused again to let that sink in. There was the possibility that somebody may be aboard the ship, too injured to get to the bridge. If that person were a member of the crew, then the ship's status would be up for grabs in a joint committee hearing and may or may not be declared salvage. We stood to make a lot of money if we actually managed to pull off the salvage, and we stood to lose a lot of money by delaying our arrival at Breakall with the cargo. Freddy took a deep breath and let it out slowly. Our options are to sail on, to stand by and await the authorities, or try to board the vessel and consummate the salvage claim. We all knew that there might be somebody aboard over there who needed help, We also knew that the 24 stands we'd been sitting off their port quarter represented 24 stands of pain and suffering to anybody who might still be there, but they were required by CPJCT regulations before we could attempt to break into the ship on our own. We were rolling the dice with other people's lives, but the Joint Committee was trying to protect a variety of interests, and in the light of the evidence, we had no probable cause for suspecting emergency conditions aboard. We just had a ship that was floating in space. Is your boarding team ready, Chief Engineer? Freddy turned to look Mel in the eye. Aye, Captain, hard suits and tool kits. Let the record show that I have assigned Spec one Power Sandra Strauss and machinist Christopher Marks to attempt to key the emergency lock in the after nacelle. Thank you, Chief Engineer. She turned to me. Mr. Huang, I formally charge you with command of the salvage team in the name of Diurnia Salvage and Transport, under the authority granted me by virtue of being captain of this vessel and the long-standing rules and regulations of deep-space salvage, as outlined in the Confederated Planets Joint Committee on Trade, Title Twelve, Section Seven. Do you understand your rights and responsibilities under this charge? I do, Captain. And do you agree to accept this charge? I do, Captain. Very well, Mr. Huang. Please state for the record your intentions. As soon as practically and legally feasible, I will convene a team consisting of the engineering crewmen previously named by Chief Engineer Manus, along with able spacer Martin Stark and spacer apprentice James Belness. We will use the ship's launch to navigate to the emergency access lock on the engineering section of the Chernyakova. Assuming that the engineering team is successful in gaining access to the ship, my team will establish operational control of the vessel, stabilize its attitude, and attempt to establish steerageway using ship's engines, navigational thrusters, and any other appropriate ship's systems that might be available. We intend to render aid and assistance to any individuals found aboard or failing to locate any living members of the crew to consummate a good-faith claim of salvage in the name of Diurnia Salvage and Transport inasmuch as we are able to ascertain our legal standing with the information and understanding we currently possess. I thought I rattled it off pretty smoothly. It sounded like I knew what I was doing, but the truth was that Mel, Freddie, and I had banged the whole thing out over dinner in the wardroom the previous evening, and I was actually reading the points off my tablet to make sure I had all the correct legal bandiflage needed to cover our collective stern quarters from any charges of breaking and entering or piracy in deep space by trying to take over a ship that, technically wasn't ours to mess with. Thank you, Mr. Huang. You have my authority as captain to carry out your mission as outlined and ratified by this board consisting of the senior officers present in the area with names and ranks appended to the log record. This meeting is adjourned. She reached out and clicked the recorder off before looking around the table. Okay, people, let's go visit the neighbors. Chapter 5, Break All System, 2371, September 28th. The launch was a bit crowded with the six of us. The two engineering crew were in their hard suits and just locked themselves to the decking along the center aisle. I was back in my soft suit, but Stark and Bellness just wore emergency ship suits. The plan was for the engineers to cross first and establish a line connection. They wouldn't open the lock until I was there as senior officer. The access would technically be under my direct supervision and responsibility, so the legal niceties would be served. It seemed an awkward dance, but with that much money, to say nothing of legal liabilities should things go wonk on us, everybody was following the forms down to the letter. Ulu was quiet on the trip over. With the extra hard suits and tools aboard, the launch probably handled about as nimbly as a brick in ice water, and she took it very carefully. It only took a few ticks to take up station directly astern of the Chernyakova and slightly above the huge open mouths of her main engines. We didn't want to be in line with those, even given the very remote possibility of their firing. She had enough of an angle to shine an arc light onto the hatch area, and we were able to see the ship's wobble as the spot stayed steady and the outline of the door wove a lopsided figure eight in the light. Miss Strauss, Mr. Marks, you are cleared to debark and establish the line. I'll follow you over on your signal. They said I aye sir, almost in unison, and then lumbered aft to the lock and had to cycle it twice to get both of them out. Hold the fort, Ulla, I told her with a smile I didn't really feel. She smiled back nervously but nodded once in agreement. I keyed the lock cycle and ran my suit check while I waited for it to allow me to enter. I could see Strauss and Marks using their suit thrusters to jet over to the stern of the ship, trailing safety lines, just like in the exercises. By the time I'd cleared the lock and stuck my head out into the silence, they'd already clipped a line to the D-ring outside the hatch, and I had a clear road from the launch to the hull. I heard Miss Strauss's voice on the common working channel. We're secure on this end, sir. On my way, Miss Strauss. I deliberately and carefully clipped my own link to the safety line, and secured a second line to the launch, just in case. The soft suit didn't have any maneuvering jets, but hand over hand along the line worked just fine in zero-g. We are at the lock, Captain, I said on the common working channel. Proceed, Mr. Huang. Freddy's voice sounded calm and cool on the radio. I turned to Marks and nodded my head inside my helmet. He smiled back and turned to the keypad next to the airlock, and he started to attach his break-in tool to the locking mechanism when Strauss held up her hand to get his attention. I could see the puzzled look on his face through his helmet as she made a little shooing motion, and he backed off a bit to give her room. She reached over and tapped a series of nine keys on the keypad. The tattletale over the lock turned amber to indicate that the lock was cycling. Strauss smiled, and I heard her voice on the working channel, Let the record show that the emergency access hatch responded to the default access code. We don't need to crack it. Good thinking, Miss Strauss, the captain acknowledged. We'd already determined that the lock would only hold two of us by experimenting back on the tinker. As the two senior staff, Strauss and I got first look, and we slipped into the lock when the outer door finally admitted us. Strauss punched the button that would cycle us into the ship. The inner door opened onto the Chernyakova's hangar deck and their launch rested on its skids, locked down securely and, by extension, ruling out the idea that any of the crew may have abandoned ship that way. We shuffled out of the lock and I punched the cycle button while Strauss limbered up her atmospheric sniffer. We're inside, Captain. The launch is here. No signs of trouble. I hope I didn't sound as spooked as I felt. The lights are on, but there doesn't seem to be anybody home. Thank you, Mr. Huang. Mr. Stark, Mr. Bellness, if you would join us, we'll begin our search. They responded on the working channel, and I turned my attention to the hangar. Strauss held up her sniffer so I could see the readings. The carbon dioxide was low, but hydrogen sulfide and methane were very high. The scrubbers were working, and I was pretty sure I didn't want to smell the air. The lock worked through its cycle behind us, and we did a quick survey of the hangar while we waited for the rest of the party to join us. Miss Strauss used her local speakers to talk to me. Could use a bit of a tidy, don't you think, sir? The hangar was littered with odd bits, and the deck itself was in need of a good swabbing. I shined my portable light back into the corners and looked under the belly of the launch. I agreed with her. I wouldn't want to fly that thing out of here with all this flammable material. Given how little of it is tied down, I suspect there's no danger of fire, Miss Strauss was thinking out loud, but I bet as soon as you opened the big lock door, most of it would be swept out by the first blast. I measured the door and the space with my eyes. Been a while since they've used this, Miss Strauss? It looks that way, sir. The lock popped open behind us, and Mr. Stark and Mr. Belness stepped onto the hangar deck in their emergency suits. I could see them looking around uneasily. I knew the feeling. In a couple of more ticks the lock cycled Mr Marks through as well. Salvage party is now on the hangar deck, Captain. We are commencing our sweep. Carry on, Mr. Huang. What followed was a nightmare. We found the crew. Most of them were where one might expect to find crew, or at least where they'd have fallen. After the first few swollen corpses we learned not to look too closely, There was nothing we could do for them. Even cleanup needed to wait until the forensics team arrived. In the meantime, we did what we could to regain stability in the ship. It was a challenge. The ship looked like it hadn't been cleaned in a stannier. The watch-standing consoles were smeared with dirt and grease in the engineering spaces. There were empty and near-empty coffee cups, mess trays, and more odd bits of cloth and clothing than I have ever seen aboard a ship. We used standby consoles and the emergency bridge connections in engineering to start stabilizing the ship and begin a preliminary investigation. We needed to know what killed them before we could take off our suits, and the clock was ticking. I led Mr. Stark and Mr. Bellness forward to survey the bridge while Ms. Strauss and Mr. Marks started up the extra consoles in engineering and began looking at the engineering status. The trip through the spine was difficult, and I tried not to look too closely at what I had to walk around on the way— Hanging wires, broken ductwork, and the swollen body I had to step over and around and didn't make it easy to ignore my surroundings. When we got to the bridge, I fired up an extra console on the forward end, and we used that to establish a control link to engineering. It gave us a look at the ship's status and provided access to the logs on autopilot. Within a half a dozen ticks, the wobbling and yawing had been damped by automated station-keeping jets, and we didn't have to worry quite so much about losing balance and falling on or in. Something unfortunate. I sent Mr. Bellness down to survey below decks and put Mr. Stark on bridge watch. While we were on ballistic trajectory, and while the helm was occupied by the corpse, there wasn't too much we could do except keep an eye open. Miss Strauss called on the working channel. I think I found it, Mr. Huang. Scroll back on the gas mixture logs, sir. I pulled up the environmental logs and started scrolling back. The levels of methane and other gaseous byproducts of decomposing bodies was clearly visible, but I scrolled back almost to the point where the ship had gotten underway. Carbon monoxide? I saw the reading on the screen, but I didn't believe it. That's what it looks like, sir. It's gone now, but it's in the record. I continued tracing back on my own screen. Shortly after getting underway, the ship had a spike in carbon monoxide in the ship's atmosphere. The recorded levels were in the fatal range, and the physical evidence around us reinforced that reality. Why didn't any of the alarms go off, sir? My fingers tapped the keys awkwardly in the heavy gloves, but I persevered and brought up the alarm status. They were all red. Sir, the environmental alarms are all shut off. I see that, Miss Strauss. Mr. Stark was watching over my shoulder and saw the list. How is that even possible, sir? I don't know, Mr. Stark. It's like the sensor control unit is gone. The sensors are there. The system's recording, but the alarm circuits are not active. I frowned. That's a general systems module. See, if you can find what caused the spike in carbon monoxide, Miss Strauss, I'll go check the systems closet. Aye, aye, sir. Her voice sounded distracted over the radio. Maybe I can find the leading sensor in the data stream. The data closet on barbells was located under the bridge ladder. I left Mr. Stark on the bridge and made my way down to the data closet. It was the twin to the one on the tinker, and it took me only a moment to find the correct cabinet. When I pulled out the drawer, the gap in components was obvious. The slot that should have held the subsystem that managed alarm routings was missing. In its place was the red maintenance card required whenever a component was pulled. Scrawled on its face was a date, July 21st, 2371, and some initials. They'd been flying without alarms for nearly two months. The sensors all worked. The systems recorded the readings, but when the readings reached critical stages, the interface that would trigger the ship's alarm system wasn't there to respond to the signal. It was an appalling breach of safety protocol. On a hunch, I went down the passage to the spares closet and pulled open the panel. It wasn't empty, but very nearly. On the tinker, we had a spare for every single component in the data closet, along with some spare racks and odd bits. I'd never tried to do it, but when I'd been systems officer, I'd made sure we had the parts we needed to rebuild the closet from the bulkheads out in case of emergency. The nearly empty closet in front of me was frightening. I opened the common working channel and called Miss Strauss. Find a source yet, Miss Strauss? Yes, sir. A smoldering burn in a pile of cast offs in a corner of the engine room. Looks like an electrical spark from a broken light bulb started it. The timing is consistent with kicker burn on their push out from break all. Check the fire detection systems, please. Doing it now, sir. There was a pause. Yes, they detected the smoke, but the heat signature was below threshold. Any indication of how long it burned, Miss Strauss? It looks like about three days, sir. Fire system reset, and that's consistent with the peak carbon monoxide readings. There was another pause. Their systems were detecting it. Why didn't they respond? There are no alarms. Yes, sir, but the watchstanders should have seen the readings. Which watchstanders, Miss Strauss? Environmental and engineering both registered in the logs, sir. How long between the time the fire started and the carbon monoxide reached critical levels, Miss Strauss? I waited for her to check the logs. Looks like about 8 or 9 stands, sir. Check the watch logs. They had to have had a change in duty during that time. Did they note anything? I headed back up to the bridge and crossed to the extra console and Mr. Stark. He could hear the exchange on the working channel of course, and he stepped back so I could access the terminal. Looks like the first signs showed up just before they secured from navigation station, sir. The readings were elevated but there was no note in the logs. I scrolled back on the OD logs and found the bridge records. None up here either, Miss Strauss. Was there anything in the watch change? I scrolled forward and saw only routine entries. Found it, sir. Elevated CO noted. Sensors flagged for malfunction. I shook my head to myself. There's nothing in the bridge logs. If they notified the bridge, it didn't get noted. The circuit got quiet. I don't know what the others were thinking, but I was imagining what must have followed as the crew started falling into a final sleep as a gas built up in their bodies. Some of them probably had headaches. They might have noticed some blurry vision. Given the number of people we found in their bunks, only the few watchstanders might have been in position to make a difference. Environmental and engineering watchstanders would have been the first to succumb as the heavy gas pooled in the stern nacelle. It wouldn't take long for the environmental systems to fill the forward section as well. I wondered if the body in the ship's spine might turn out to be the messenger sent aft to find out why nobody back there was responding. I shook off the images and fired up the command circuit. I needed to let Freddie know what I'd found. I stood in the front of the bridge, facing forward. The coldness of the deep dark seemed relatively clean. Chapter 6 Break-all System 2371. October 2nd. The forensic team asked us to chill the ship down to just above freezing to help preserve the evidence. It had been long enough that the evidence was pretty far beyond preserving and we lived in our suits when aboard. We also used the thrusters to turn the ship and while we were still in a ballistic trajectory the path was inward and toward the investigative team that was racing out to meet us. As a result, only four days after turning the ship, we rendezvoused. Their ship was a fast packet in a 20-metric kiloton range, and they boarded by the simple expedient of docking with us nose to nose. That allowed us to effectively use the main locks on both ships and walk between them. I was at the brow to meet the team when we cycled the locks. Both ships had breathable air, but we didn't want to contaminate theirs with what we knew ours must smell like. When the lock opened, a team of six very professional-looking individuals wearing black soft suits stepped out. The suits had the Confederated Planets logo on the breast and the letters TIC across the back. I was impressed. The Trade Investigation Commission was the big dog in the enforcement arm. More often than not, it was the TIC that sent in the Marines. In this case, they looked like salvation to me. These folks did not mess about, brooked no hanky-panky, and knew their business, and everybody else's, inside and out. The leader of the TIC team waited patiently for me to track onto his face. You're acting Captain Ishmael Huang? Yes, sir, I am. I'm Field Agent James Waters, representing the CPJCT investigatory team. We request permission to come aboard to offer aid and assistance to you and your crew under the terms of the Emergency Relief Clause of Title 12 and also to begin our securing the available evidence pursuant to our investigation of the death of the crew. We further stipulate that we recognize that you and your crew are operating in good faith to safeguard the vessel and that evidence to the best of your abilities, pending any evidence to the contrary, which we may uncover, and that you have successfully consummated a claim of salvage against this vessel, its cargo, and relevant appurtenances. Obviously, this guy practiced the speech, I couldn't imagine that he did it that often, that he'd be able to just rattle it off like that. Permission granted, Agent Waters. Welcome aboard, and I'm glad to have you. Thank you, Mr. Huang. We'll begin with a survey of the ship, dump out the computer data cores, and begin retrieval of the remains. This is likely to be uncomfortable and unpleasant. If you'd like to send your people over to the Perchway, you're welcome to use our facilities. Thank you, Agent Waters. We've been shuttling crew between here and the tinker, but it's still been a long and trying few days. He nodded in sympathy before giving a hand signal, and the whole black-suited lot of them tromped onto the ship. It took them a surprisingly short time to clean up the bodies. One of the Pertwee's holes was turned into a morgue, and their team included two coroners. Within a day, they'd removed all the bodies, copied the computer cores, Taken photographs of much of the ship and even cleaned up a lot of the more unfortunate byproducts. We all gave depositions regarding what we'd found and walked a team of examiners through the process we'd gone through on boarding and explained exactly what we'd touched, where we'd looked, and what we'd found. When it was over, Ancient Waters invited me to the Pertwee and we shared a cup of coffee on their mess deck. It felt good to peel back the soft suit a bit and breathe real air. I'd had a few stands out of the suit back on the Tinker over the previous couple of days, but I was feeling a bit worse for wear and had some suit chafe in places that it didn't bear to think too long about. You've done well, Mr. Huang. Are you going to be able to take the ship in from here. I think so, Agent Waters. The Tinker has a crate of spares for us. We know what mistakes they made. We won't be making them. Well, we've cleaned up what we could for you, but that's not going to be a pleasant ship to ride in, I sighed. Yes, I'm sure. Is there anything you need us to safeguard? He shook his head. We took samples and swabs of everything. This really looks like a simple case of carelessness. It's too circumstantial to be foul play. Everything in this ship is held together with baling wire and spit. Even their food stores are barely up to regulation. Yes, we noted that too. It's plenty to get us back to break all, but I wouldn't have wanted to go heading out into the deep dark with that level of stores. Ancient Waters grimaced and added his own summary or spares, or tankage, or anything else. Were they that broke, Agent Waters? He shrugged. If I knew, I wouldn't be able to say. But it sure looks like a shoestring operation that just ran off the end of its string. We sat there for a moment, and then he stood. Well, Mr. Schwang, I'll let you get back to your ship. I need to follow up with the investigative staff. He grimaced. If it's any consolation to you, I'll be filling out reports all the way back. I grinned. I'd almost be willing to trade with you, Agent Waters. This is going to be a long three weeks. I pulled my suit back up around me, buttoned it up. Agent Waters looked at me strangely. You know the air is breathable in there. I nodded. Yes, but we're going to change out the air and reload it to try to purge some of the smell. He grimaced. Yeah, good luck with that. It'll help some, and I'd recommend you keep the air temp down. That'll help too. I nodded my thanks and headed back to the locks. It took only a couple of ticks to cycle through to the Chernyakova. We released the latches, and the Pertwe used her maneuvering thrusters to pull back and fall off to starboard. We set about clearing as much of the smell as we could. Freddy sent over replacement circuit boards, so we were able to get alarms back online. With just the five of us as a skeleton crew, we were going to be relying on automated systems a good deal. We vented the tainted air and refilled the ship with a clean mixture that was clear of methane and the other gaseous byproducts of decomposition. We used the depressurization to test the alarm circuits, and they triggered exactly as they should have when the hull pressure dropped. They also put up a proximity alarm because we were sailing so close to the tinker, and they seemed to be fully online. I was on the bridge with Mr. Belness and Mr. Stark when the hull finally regained pressure. We looked at each other. Nobody wanted to be the first to take off a helmet and breathe ship's air. As ranking officer, I did the only thing I could do and pulled the seal on my suit. Cold ship air rushed in, carrying a whiffy carrion odor that I won't try to describe. It wasn't enough to make me retch, but I had to swallow a couple of times to get control. Mr. Bellness and Mr. Stark followed my lead. Both of them made faces but kept control. Let's get some cleaning gear up here and scrub down the bridge with something strong and chemical-smelling, gentlemen. I blinked my eyes against the odor. And maybe we should do that first. Mister. Belness headed for the cleaning locker below decks and returned shortly with sponges and buckets of hot water with a resinous smelling soap so strong that pinched the lining of your nose. We all leaned close to the bucket and took lungs full of the moist air. It helped a little after a fast hour's washdown of the bridge. The smell wasn't entirely gone, but the resin soap was giving it a run for its money. I left the decoratings to finish putting away the cleaning gear and made my way aft to see how things were progressing in engineering. By the time I got there, the odor wasn't bothering me so much. Perhaps the proximity to the scrubbers was making a difference, or perhaps my nose was just getting numbed to the stimulation. I found Strauss and Marks working on the engineering spaces. This place is filthy, sir. I looked around and had to agree. The bridge was a little better, but obviously they didn't place much value in cleanliness, Miss Strauss. Mr. Marks sighed. It was worth their lives, sir. Too bad they valued that so little. That was a sobering thought, like we needed to be any more sober. He had the right of it. If the pile of rubbish hadn't been there, it wouldn't have caught fire. Of course, if they hadn't shorted themselves on spares, the ship would have alerted them to their danger. Looking around once more, I grabbed a sweep and started to help clear the trash and other detritus. It took us a couple of stands to get the ship clean enough to start up the generators and get underway. She responded well enough, and the tinker led us into the gravity well, acting as an escort and a warning. We were operating with a skeleton crew, and while it was allowed under the emergency relief clauses of Title 12, better to have some crew than none, it was still not an optimal solution because we were unable to keep up the normal watch rota required for a vessel of the Chernyakovas class. The watchstander merry-go-round went at a blinding pace as we traded watch and watch around the clock. Miss Strauss and Mr. Marks handled engineering while Mr. Stark and Mr. Belness traded off Helm. Every twelve stands, I'd relieve one or the other to give each pair a chance to sleep a little bit. Meals were catch-as-catch-can, and I usually tried to have something warm and pungent in the stove as often as I could. Even that was a challenge, because the general lack of cleanliness extended even to the mess deck and galley. We found enough unstained mattresses to outfit five bunks and deck berthing, gathered all the stained and damaged ones in engineering. It was a small help, but even small improvements added up. After a couple of days of having to clean everything we wanted to use, we had enough cleaned up that we could at least function without having to undo the neglect of the late crew. By then, we were all so tired and so used to the smell, we didn't notice it anymore. But I knew it would stay with me for a long, long time. Thanks for listening to Captain Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is the mason's apron and is used with permission of the artist J.F. Archer. Find this and other works by J.F. Archer at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial, No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. license. For more information on the golden age, visit www.solarclipper.com.